Good afternoon, and welcome to the 94th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I talk about the big questions of social science research in the context of COVID-19 with Alexa Dietrich of the Social Science Research Council. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere that you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 30th, 2020, there are 17,126,081 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. It's up from 16,829,840 reported yesterday. Of those, 4,472,963 are in the United States. That's up from 4,396,030 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 151,570 deaths reported in the United States, up from 150,034 reported yesterday. We continue to have more than 1,000 deaths a day from COVID-19 in the United States. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day. I'd like to continue that now. And yesterday, if you listened to COVID calls, you heard that I read the obituary of David Prasivka, who was an emergency management official in Atascosa County, Texas, just south of Bayer County, Texas. And, And I was tipped off from a colleague Samantha Montano, I know many of you follow her writing and follow her on Twitter, um, that in fact, someone who was mentioned, someone who was mentioned in the obituary um, actually had died as well, which I found extraordinary. And and so yesterday, uh, if you go looking for the David Prasivka obituary in yesterday's show, you'll, you'll hear I mentioned Kyle Coleman. And Kyle Coleman was providing some of the information for the obituary of David Prasivka and attesting to Prasivka um, how well he performed his job and and what a a great person he was. And now I'm going to read you the obituary of Kyle Coleman. Uh, Kyle Coleman, Bayar County, San Antonio, Texas, emergency management coordinator and a public servant for decades, died of a heart attack due to complications from COVID-19. According to Bayer County officials, this comes from Texas Public Radio and the Leatherwood Memorial Chapel. Nathan Kyle Coleman, age 69, of Atkins, Texas, died July 14, 2020. Kyle, as he was known to everyone, was born in San Antonio. He attended Wayland Baptist University in San Antonio, where he earned his bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Kyle began his career with Bayer County law enforcement shortly after graduating from Sam Houston High School in 1982. A dedicated deputy, Kyle quickly rose through the ranks of the Bayer County Sheriff's Office. As a sergeant, Kyle saw the devastating impact that gang activity had on neighborhoods and local youth in the community and led the department's gang unit. His dedication to the job knew no bounds. In 1995, without a thought to his own safety, he rushed into a burning local nursing home and saved every resident. He was later awarded the Medal of Valor 
by the Bear County Sheriff's Office, who once again answered the call for help when natural disaster struck and laid the foundation for the Bear County Emergency Management Department in 2005. In 2012, he was named Bear County Emergency Management Coordinator and held that position at the time of his death. During his tenure as the Emergency Management Coordinator, Kyle continued to bring the county through natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita, Hurricane Harvey, and others. Recognizing that disasters don't care about county lines, he helped create the Alamo Area Incident Management Team, which is the first all-hazards incident management team for the state of Texas that assists throughout the region. His knowledge and skills for managing teams of people, supplies, and the calming approach in the face of chaos earned him the respect of his peers across the country, and he was regarded as a subject matter expert by federal, state, and local responders. He leaves a legacy of excellence in the Bayer County Emergency Management Department, widely respected and commended and dedicated to preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation. His ability to transcend physical and political boundaries to bring relief to communities in need set him apart during certain times. Kyle was a kind-hearted individual, deeply loved and respected by all who knew him, worked with him, and rode with him. His spirited laughter could light up a room. His sensitivity and guidance was always a calming presence in the face of adversity and disaster. Inspired by his family's lifelong connection to trail rides, he enjoyed riding horses. His father started leading the Alamo Trail Rides in the 1960s, and Kyle took over as the trail boss in 1986, and he had led them ever since. I'd like to turn to the discussion for today, and I'm very excited to talk to Alexa Dietrich. And let me introduce her first. Alexa S. Dietrich is Program Director for the Social Science Research Council's Trans-Regional Collaboratory on the Indian Ocean, the Scholarly Borderlands Initiative, and Co-Director of the Program on Religion in the Public Sphere. She's also Associate Professor of Anthropology at Wagner College. She's trained in medical anthropology and epidemiology, earning both a PhD and a master's of public health from Emory University. Her interests lie at the intersection of culture and health, technology and the natural environment, and the application of qualitative and quantitative research methods. She conducted community action research over seven years in the Northern Pharmaceutical Corridor of Puerto Rico, published in the monograph, The Drug Company Next Door, Pollution, Jobs, and Community Health in Puerto Rico, which came out with New York University Press in 2013. This was the winner of the Julian Stewart Award for the best book in environmental anthropology in 2015. Alexa, thank you for making time to come on COVID Calls today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Scott. So what are we gonna let's so, what are we gonna talk about? <laughs> Well, let's 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 um, jump into it. We I have the privilege of speaking with Alexa about once a week because we collaborate right now, and and so it's a thrill to get a chance to have a longer conversation um, with you and with everyone else. And I want to start this discussion the way I've, I've been starting them all, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and what the COVID nineteen situation looks like there today. Yeah. Um, well, I should say that I most of the pandemic I've spent uh, mostly in my apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Um, uh, sheltering in place. Um, and then I, I had a couple of family circumstances come up that necessitated my leaving. And so I'm currently in uh, Chico, California. And it is a very different circumstance here in some ways. Um, 
the caseload is obviously much lower, but there's a lot of concerns in California about it rising uh, because of people um, going out and about without masks, I think, largely. And I think there's what I've observed, although I have to say I observed this in New York before I left as well, is that there definitely seems to be a pervasive sense, um, anecdotally, one could say, that, um, you know, there's increasing guidance that, that people should. But I think that there's um, there's something about it that doesn't seem to feel necessary for people. You know, that sense of we're in the open air and so it's safe. Um, and you see that. I, I've seen that a lot, um, both here and in New York. So I think that's um, anyway, that's that's the visual I can give you. The big one. The um, New York Times has these, you know, graphics coming out on a regular basis where they show the, the curve as it as it exists in various places. And, um, and they had one up last week where they had the curve, but they also had the date of the sort of state shutting down and New York and New Jersey had followed kind of what I think epidemiologically you'd like to see, which is a, a shutdown and then, a, you know, the curve bending. And there's yeah. some static at the end of that curve, particularly in New Jersey right now, California hasn't followed that trajectory so you're you're out there in California, but you're in Northern California, which, as I take right. it, maybe the trend is different there versus Southern California. Do you, do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, some of it has to do with population densities, you know, but also different kinds of activities that are available. You know, um, my sense of the numbers here, right, Chico is a small university town, is that some of the, um, my understanding from the data I looked at quickly this morning, so don't hold me too hard to this, but my impression was that some of those numbers are skewing fairly young, 18 to 25 year olds. Those are folks who have, are still living here, you know, either because they go to school here and they've stayed here for the summer or whatever. And, you know, you go around and you see a lot of socializing, <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, and so I think that part of the question is, you know, what are the, what are the social activities that people have available to them that they're trying to take advantage of, as well as the question of population density? So, um, you know, if there, I think, there's been a lot of talk both, I think, in California, Southern California, as well as in Florida and in New Jersey, to some extent, about folks going to beaches and feeling like, you know, yeah. th they're mask off and they're doing whatever. And it's, you know, but I think that that sort of sense of um, once you have your mask off, then you really need to commit to much more significant social distancing. And that, I think, in, in practical terms, doesn't really happen once you're in those settings, you know. Um, it's Remarkable to me, we're five months into this in the United States and still learning how to use masks and stay six feet apart from each other. But it, maybe that's something we'll talk about today, how because of you know, in your public health background, you know how hard it is to yes. get a message out there that people understand and follow. And, and when, then when the message isn't clearly articulated over time, mm -hmm. I, I can't help but think that's a bit of what we're seeing right now. People have heard mm -hmm. mixed things about the mask yep. and... Yeah, particularly outdoors. Yeah. So I want to get to that, but first I want to find out more about you. Um, so and I'd like to know, actually, so you got the PhD and you've got an MPH. You, you wrote this book about Puerto Rico. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory, the, how you find sure. yourself in, in medical anthropology and what kind of issues were uh, important sure. enough to you that you spent so much time mastering those topics because that's quite a commitment. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, the the real short answer or the sort of origin story of this is that um, I my 
mother was um, a healthcare administrator, particularly in hospice and uh, hematology and oncology for most of my life. And so I grew up in hospitals and healthcare centers and, you know, are being around folks, particularly folks who had cancer. And so um, I was always really interested in pollution for that reason, you know, and um, I'm from upstate New York. We have a lot of, you know, uh, environmental issues, um, super fun sites and whatnot. Um, and that sort of sense that there was a relationship, you know, between um, so many people um, having uh from my perspective and in my family, for example, cancer, you know, that that was very visible to me from mm -hmm. a child. And so I think that sort of set of wanting to understand better what that set of relationships looked like, um, but also from a social, the social side of things. And so my initial, my initial um, interests were kind of environmental health related topics. And uh, I wound up in Puerto Rico for a couple different reasons, but one of which was, was learning really about um, the, the, such a high number of pharmaceutical manufacturing facilities there um, per capita, at, mm. at least at the time, the highest mm. in the world. And uh, that was this, that was true in upstate New York as well. We had big pharmaceutical manufacturing. And so for me, it was kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about these two places. Um, obviously, they're very different, but at the same time, managing some of the same kinds of um, uh, industries. And so that was that was what drew me there. And then, of course, as, as most people find, you get there and the picture, of course, is actually very complicated. <laughs> um, you have to learn a whole bunch of other kinds of new things. I ended up finding that it was where I was. It was less about the air pollution, more about the water pollution. So I found myself reading uh, very extensively about sewage management, um, which is not, you know, not sexy, but super important. I think you spoke with yeah. Marcus Hendricks recently, and I know that's I something he's also talked about. Um, that sort of awareness of that kind of, you know, the infrastructure that is hidden um, it, it, you know, was something that I became very aware of, I think, as well as um, in your some of your terminology, I think that idea of what constitutes a slow disaster and also what constitutes a disaster for whom, you know. So a polluted community is experiencing a very particular kind of disaster, but that's not an emergency for other people necessarily. Right. For government agencies or even for the utility companies or others who are sort of in theory accountable to those communities and providing the services, you know, um, uh, so I think that idea that, that a disaster is not always a disaster for everybody in the same way was also something that I learned about quite early on with that project. How did the masters of public health sort of feed into, into the work? I mean, I'm expecting you were, able to do types of analysis you couldn't have done otherwise because of things you might've learned at MPH school, but yeah. Well, and also, and also really learning, um, about the limits of those analyses. Right. So, um, mm -hmm. I was really fortunate that at the time, um, at Emory, there were a good number of resources for, uh, folks in public health to study in the social sciences and liberal arts and for the reverse to happen. So there were a number of folks, not just in anthropology, but in sociology and women's studies, who benefited from year-long fellowships at the School of Public Health. Uh, and so, I mean, you had to apply. You still had to get into a program there um, if you wanted to actually pursue a degree, which most people did. Uh, but so there's a whole cohort of us who came out of Emory with PhDs in the social sciences um, and humanities, but also with master's in public health. And it was a very concerted effort to create those kinds of professionals with that dual perspective and experience. Um, those programs, unfortunately, were um, casualties of the uh, 2008 um, 
Great Recession, but um, but I think there's still a sense that it was a really productive set of um, both intellectual and practical engagements. So yeah, I got a, a master's in public health and epidemiology, um, which gave me a certain amount of training and statistics, not only that I could do some of the analyses myself, but also to be um, a, a smarter critic of public health work. Mm. And um, for example, I think, and this comes up in environmental issues a lot, is the question of, well, if the data point is not in your data set, you can't measure the relationship, right? So um, the key one for, for my study at that time was um, that the, there was a local epidemiological study of health issues, including um, about about uh, um, like pulmonary um, pulmonary issues, asthma, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no data collected in that process about ambient air. They only collected air, you know, they, they collected mm. information about whether there's a smoker in your household. Um, but they didn't collect data about uh, or in any way kind of try to um, to understand what possible relationship might exist between the air that was being polluted by the pharmaceutical companies or by the wastewater treatment plant. And so it was one of those things that... Um, there were actually advocates in the community um, who had successfully stopped that uh, that study from going through because they very logically said, you know, if you're not measuring air pollution, we'll never be able to say anything about the impact of air pollution with the study. We can only blame any problems on smoking or whatever that you've measured in this survey. Um, and so th- those kinds of, I think, awareness of um, of how people, you know, that's that old saw, right, of how people lie with statistics um, is, I think, something that a lot of folks who took these courses and did this training in epidemiology and biostatistics, um, we became a lot more, I think, sophisticated about how we understood, you know, uh, those data, their power and their power to obfuscate. Must be quite something in, in this time to see, you know, what epidemiologists are going I mean, the intense pressures that they're being put through, as I'm seeing, I've, I've spoken with several on the program. I spoke with Esther Chernak, one of my colleagues at Drexel, multiple times, and she's not only trying to do her research in science, she's in a university setting, but she also worked in the Philly Department of Public Health for 25 years. Yeah. And she's pulled back and forth between those two worlds. And it's, see, this is my, my take, because she hasn't said this, but it just seems intensely stressful. You know, they're yeah. sort of pulled to be both academic scientists, but also the public face yeah. of policy decisions, which they don't always agree with. It seems like a hard right. thing to balance. I think so. And, and like, I mean, I do think that anyone who's had that kind of epidemiology training, I mean, I, I wouldn't try to pass myself off as an infectious disease epidemiology expert. That's not, it's not my area. It's not my field. And it's not my, my, um, my top level training, so to speak. But I, it's that sense of I'm trained enough to understand how um, complex their work right now is, right? And that sort of question about particularly, um, you know, and you see a lot of commentary, I think, within academic circles and to some extent uh, policy circles in epidemiology, you see this conversation on social media and things where people are just saying the, the issue is that we're getting new information all the time. And so then we adjust what we know based on that information. And that's something that is really rational um, from a research perspective or like we're refining our models perspective. Um, but, but the right. pressure to have a policy outcome at each point, it's like a hot take. You know, it's like our initial right. set of data analyses are essentially hot take. 
as we all know on social media, some hot takes are completely brilliant and stand the test of time. And others just don't because they're just based on that right. sort of, um, right. Right. this is what we think we know right now. And, and I think that as, you know, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot and, and we could talk about it ad nauseum, but, um, you know, it's, it makes a difference, of course, to have, um, to have politicians and policymakers who are willing to embrace an understanding of uncertain amount of uncertainty. Um, and I think right. that uncertainty and our, I mean, we've talked about this in disaster research. We've talked about this, right. um, you know, in the, the panel that was sponsored at the American Meteorological Society and the subsequent set of essays that came out after that about uncertainty. I mean, I think folks working in the disaster space in particular are really aware of the, the sort of problem of uncertainty. Uh, but I think um, that's... N I, you know, it's like, I wish we'd had more time to really try to work on that and, and be able to make a set of recommendations sort of maybe for policymakers about how to, how to think about and communicate about uncertainty, because the fact is, there's a lot that's uncertain. And how do we, how do we think clearly about the uncertainty mm -hmm. is something I think, um, it, this is being shown up a lot right now in this question about yeah. epidemiology and policy. And I was talking about this yesterday with Jim Whittington and Brian Houston. We were talking about communication and disaster and emergency management. And Brian pointed out, um, he's a communications scholar, and he pointed out that it's at some point he had kind of thought it was a little bit um, pedestrian that some of the principles that CDC had about communication, like be credible, things like that. And he said it was a point <laughs> in my career where I found that to be a little silly. He said, I don't right. find that silly at all anymore. He said, I no. understand a deeper level now that, um, and, and part of that is, ju is just this sort of building up trust so that if the recommendation changes in the middle of the disaster, mm -hmm. you still maintain your credibility. Right, right. And, and I think that takes okay. some work. Yeah, yeah no, that I'm, just takes some work. Well, and I, it's something, you know, that actually this is, this is also a set of topics that I dealt with in the book in the, in the previous project and set of works. Um, you know, my more recent work has been looking really at the aftermath of, of several different hurricanes in places that, that I have connections. Um, and, but that, that was something, the question of trust, right. Um, and the question of credibility and problems with blame shifting. Um, I think those are not new problems in these contexts, right? right. Um, especially, I think, in contexts like environmental pollution and other kinds of things where the direct line between the point source and the outcome can't really be quite clearly drawn, mm -hmm. right? Either because mm -hmm. of a lack of data or because of a time scale that's not, you know, you can't see it. <laughs> um, it's too long a right. time scale right. or, um, right. or latency of certain kinds of health issues um developing and so i think that that um the the capacity for um people particularly people embedded in certain kind of institutions like government agencies um to uh and i'm not even i guess i don't want to be careful about how i, how I say this is i don't even necessarily think it's 100 percent their own personal agency in doing this right this is part of how the kind of how these systems work, how these institutions work, right? That the sort of the moment where you get asked the hard question, um, there's often a tendency to cover either your own 
backside or that of your boss or that of your, you know, whatever, because there's a mm-hmm. you know, kind of holding the team together sort of thing. And so um, whenever there's a space that opens up for uncertainty, that's a space that can be um, used to deflect accountability uh, for, for some of those things. And I think mm-hmm. that that's a huge, it's a huge problem. Um, and it's, it's a huge problem anyway. It is a worse problem now with the state of kind of politics um, that we have is that lack of transparency, though, and lack of accountability. Those things have been around for a real long time. Um, and it's true in public health, too. But I think some of that stuff is a little more visible in the environmental set of examples. Absolutely. Let me remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking about big questions in social science uh, research and disaster research and COVID-19. I'm talking with Alexa Dietrich and um, let, I want to go back a little bit. Um, I should have done this at the top. Maybe you can tell us what the SSRC is and oh, how sure. you found your way to SSRC. And then let's start <laughs> talking a little bit about the COVID-19 work. Yeah. Uh, Well, the Social Science Research Council, um, U.S.-based Social Science Research Council, is a uh, private nonprofit organization that has for nearly 100 years been the place where the the associations of the social sciences come together and uh, help chart kind of shared uh, research agendas and shared uh, foci, um, for questions about, you know, social life and social research. And particularly, I think particularly important is to that is, um, the, the question that these are shared, right? So this is not just kind of like, what should psychology be doing now? Or what should anthropology be doing now? But this question of like, what do we really need the expertise of all these different disciplines to come together and look at? And so there's a high, a high, um, value placed on the, and this can mean a lot of different things, or it depends on the context, but some fundamental aspect of interdisciplinarity in the work of the SSRC, even as it supports and is supported by the disciplinary associations um, across the social sciences. And so um, that makes it a, a pretty unique, um, a unique gathering place for researchers. Uh, we also fund tons of research, particularly at the dissertation level. Um, all of that funding we get from external sources, foundations, uh, particularly um, sometimes government government agencies will fund some of our programs, but um, we work with them to sort of figure out how it is that we that we move these um, these research agendas forward. You know, for for the for the current moment, um, and and what are really important aspects. So um, currently, you know, we have um, initiatives about inequality, um, initiatives that we previously had very recently are still working on about anxieties of democracy, um, questions about social mm-hmm. data. Um, as well as right now, we're also working, which is one of the projects I work on, um, really thinking about what collaborative research means. Um, and that has come into play in some ways also in the in, in sort of a time of COVID, because um, we're also asking questions, have long been asking questions, but particularly now, I think, are looking to encourage folks to think about um, how they do their research, how they do it ethically, how they um, mm-hmm. learn and 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 deploy new and and um, and uh, creative um, methods of data collection and data analysis. 
um, and and then also thinking about internationally international work um, and how how to make that more equitable, um, particularly especially with collaborations and, and north south collaborations. So. Um, Anyone who works for the SSRC would have their own version of what that story looks like, but I think that's kind of that's sure. one version, no, one overview. For, thanks for, no, that's great. And and I first became aware of the SSRC, I think I'd heard of it, I think I'd heard of it historically, but um, in like the history of the social sciences, but I first really sort of found it in my own work after Hurricane Katrina, and there was an extraordinary... Um, set of essays that was published in 2006, I guess, called Understanding Katrina. Mm-hmm. And um, you and I were talking a little bit before we started the call today, you know, in those days, back in my day, you know, I sort of tell it like this, but I mean, <laughs> there there was, you, when a disaster, there was a sort of instant literature that could be found. Um, but in those days, the instant literature were edited volumes you know, that were published and it would take a couple of years. I mean, mm-hmm. to find something faster than that was pretty rare. And if you had researchers that you wanted to know about, you want to know what they were thinking about 9-11 or the Indian Ocean tsunami or Hurricane Katrina, you had to seek them out. I mean, you had to find mm-hmm. them, you had to talk to them at conferences, or you might find that they'd published a little bit or piece here or there. But that essay collection appeared and it had... Lee Clark, and it had uh, Enrico Corantelli, it had Kathleen Tierney, um, it had researchers who, uh, some of whom were very well established, and it had new researchers as well who were asking questions about Katrina, about power, about race, um, that we had not seen brought together in one place. And I know I'm not alone in this because I've talked to lots of other folks who are like, yeah, that Understanding Katrina series was really important for me too. And I just wanted to share that and get that on the record and people should check it out if they haven't found it. Cause it's actually held up, held up well. Yeah. And I think, you know, there were a lot of things about it that, that were important. And I think we've talked about this before, but you know, there was a time period kind of around that couple of years where, um, the SSRC really put out, um, a number of essay series on, on topics of, of public importance. You know, so there was one about race and genetics. Uh, there had been previously had been one about 9-11, um, which was earlier, obviously. Uh, and then also uh, blogs, you know, other kinds of blogs and blogging is sort of becoming well, at the time, I think, the question of like, well, what is a blog and how does it work and how does it fit into the kind of landscape of, of academic publishing? And so the Katrina series came along at a time uh, when that was all new and kind of becoming interesting. But people still, I think, weren't sure what role that should play. And I think nobody knew what that role would be, but it's turned out, I think that particularly um, as it serves, ultimately serves as sort of a primer for a lot of disaster researchers and research that was done, that was being done at the time uh, and also would be done, you know, moving into the future. And then what was nice was that the the project that that part of that project was to produce that essay series Part of that project was to fund other much more substantial kind of not hot off the press, but longer term project engagements. And a number of those, uh, you know, they produced a, what's called the Katrina Bookshelf, which came out, I believe, from the University of Texas Press. Uh, and right. those were much longer baking, you know, projects. So it was kind of the Absolutely. It was a way in which the SSRC, I think, had a great kind of moment of being able to support and get out 
um, research in different temporalities, right? Because there's an element where it's kind of like, we need to know immediately this kind of rapid response um, uh, type of type of research, which is really important and can sometimes really make sure that you um, that you take account of of what they call you know perishable data or or and I think in some of that stuff is not so much necessarily talking to people on the spot because there are ethical issues related to that, but also just being on the spot and bearing witness uh, to things that have happened. And so I think there's an element of that that's really important. But then there's also the piece about we really need to sit with this and think about what it means. Mm-hmm. and look at how it unfolds over time. Uh, Kate Brown's work is a really good example of that, Standing in the Need, which is this much more longitudinal project. Um, and she herself has said, you know, I really didn't write a lot of interim pieces about it because I really wanted right. to make sure I sort of really, you know, grappled with and didn't didn't jump to a lot of conclusions. So I think there's a place for both of those kinds of outputs. And I think that Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina is one of those topics or that the SSRC in particular really... Uh, help support both for for researchers, and that was mm. been really, I think, effective. And a lot of a lot of learning happened and continues to happen out of that as those pieces are taught, you know, to undergraduates and and other folks. That um, was meeting ground too. As I'm remembering it now, and this is a way maybe for us to begin to talk about what's happening right now around the COVID nineteen work at SSRC. Um, you know, there's always been this sort of like tense, I don't know how we would call it, it's kind of a, a boundary work that goes on about the humanities and social sciences and can anthropology and history, can we, you know, come also, are we invited to, to be next to disaster sociologists? Because sociology has a much longer sort of track record for funded research in what we would call disaster research. Yeah. And in that 2005 collection, um, Greg Bankoff was in there, and he's a historian and a, a great historian of, of disaster. And, um, you know, alongside, again, Tierney and others who are sort of fundamental in the sociology of disaster, I think that was, I think that was an important move. It might be one that um, to some people it, we have to translate a little bit, but you were just translating it really well, which is to say different scholars are going to choose different temporalities not only in how they and how they work. So some mm-hmm. of them are going to want to publish things quite quickly based on perishable data and others are going to want to take, I think historians might do this more often, they're going to want to take what's happening now and lay in a deeper infrastructure for you to trace that back over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, so there's that happening, but there's also the sense of which, how you draw the temporal boundaries of the disaster itself. That's one of the issues where you and I first started talking about this in March, that we immediately were talking a lot about the think. How do you think about COVID as a disaster? Is it an event? Is it a single thing? How much precondition do you have to bring in? How long's the timeline? I don't know. It might be interesting to bring that back up to you right now and see if your mm-hmm. thinking about it has changed at all in these last few months. Mm. The one thing, we're still talking about the same disaster five months later, and there were still new things emerging. So right. there is that aspect. What do you, what's your sense about how COVID-19 is challenging our approaches to scale, temporal, geographical? Well, I, I've, I've thought about it a lot, although I don't know that I have kind of an answer answer. I think that it's not that difficult to think about 
how this differs in some ways from other types of disasters that, that you or I have, have, um, have experienced or done research in. I do think that the length of this experience, and it will be longer, right, is a little more akin to what it's like for people who are actually living and experiencing the disaster, as opposed to researchers and the general public who, after a little while, they've moved on, you know? Um, whereas I think if you, you know, I lived on Staten Island before, during, and after Hurricane Sandy. Um, I had also actually experienced a pretty severe storm when I lived in Puerto Rico, although nothing like um, Hurricane Maria. Um, and I think also, you know, if you look at the Chico where I am now, which is um, the closest closest city to where the campfire um, occurred, you know, so that I've spent some, some quality time in places where um, disasters have happened. And if you didn't, if you weren't there, you, it's like, it's like, it's over, you know, but if you're there, it's really not over, you know, it, things were going on beforehand, things are happening in the acute moment. And then this, you know, what we sort of you know, we have these labels like a oh, recovery. Well, now we're in recovery now. Well, what does that even mean, right? There are people who, um, whose homes are still destroyed. They're still living on somebody's couch. There's, you know, it's like, that's not, and there's a lot, you know, this, this is something that researchers talk about, right? That, that living on someone's couch, I don't know, is that really fair to call that being in a recovery process, right? But just as one example, um, or having the power grid that still doesn't reliably work, um, you know, or, or, or having the hospital, um, uh, you know, not function well for years after something, you know, so I think that, that there's a way in which, um, if we, if we can tune in our senses of empathy, that living that for people living through this experience who themselves have less experience with actually living through disasters, that it might mm -hmm. be a way for them to sort of realize how long things really last if you're really in the middle of something. Um, and I would like to imagine that, they, I mean, I know it's a person who sort of, I've, I've said this, I don't know, throughout my career to myself, if not to other people, that I always sort of wished that there was like, that there was a way to leverage people's empathy a little more for other people, <laughs> you know, um, who are going through other things. <laughs> And, you know, there's also right. there's been some written in anthropology about the limits of empathy. And there's some people who doubt that empathy should be a tool for ethnography. And there's all sorts of sort of debate about that. But at a fundamental human level, I feel like um, certainly our policymakers could benefit from a dose of greater empathy. You know, this idea of like, well, you're experiencing this as part of the COVID pandemic. Maybe you can reflect on now what other folks have experienced in these very long term, very poorly funded, poorly supported disaster recovery processes and like, you know, maybe feel a little more for them um, in the sense of respond, you know, in the in the sense of validate their experience and support it and, you know, mm -hmm. give people resources that they need. Um, and some of that stuff just seems like it's, it's not rocket science. But if, if there's a silver lining on some of this, that could be, I don't know. I would, I guess I wouldn't put it as a silver lining, but maybe there's an outcome there that's, that could be helpful for how we think about disasters. Does that I make mean, sense? There's, there's two, <laughs> it does, it does absolutely. I know. I mean, it's like my head is tingling because it's, there's two dimensions of this that are really super crucial and the way you spelled them out that have to do with, in some ways, the collapse of sort of space and time 
boundaries the way we often think of them in disaster. One mm-hmm. as is oftentimes disaster researchers are, I mean, sometimes we live in New York and 9-11 happens, okay, or we live in, you know, we live in California and Loma Prieta happens or, or whatever it may be, or Japan and Fukushima. There is that. But in the main, it, we, we support the idea that you don't have to live through a disaster to approach it analytically. I mean, we'd be pretty limited if disaster research was only conducted by people who lived in a place where the disaster occurred. So on the one hand, you're you're opening our eyes to the idea that, you know, this is global. So basically everyone who's doing disaster research is experiencing this in some way, literally, personally, not just analytically, but also as, you know, right. a human being. And I know right. we like to think of ourselves as sort of like sometimes like separated from our own humanity, but, uh, we are one person ultimately. The other part of it is the inverse of that to a certain extent, which is that, you know, the civilians, the non-researchers are themselves being confronted with the slowness and the unfoldingness and the grindingness of this disaster And and how, as it moves through and the uncertainty and, and also the revelatory aspect, it, 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 the headline in the New York Times today, the, the worst economic drop in American history, George Floyd's murder, these different rooms in it that um, I don't know, maybe it's too strong to say that every person is a disaster social scientist, but I think people are being exposed to the types of anal- analyses and framings that usually would not they wouldn't have access to because that's not how the media covers disaster and they're, they're distant from it. So right. it's, it's quite unique in both of those regards, I think. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think there's, you know, anthropology has maybe embraced some of this a little more, I guess, history, history too, in, in its own way, you know, a little bit more that sense of insider perspectives are really important and outsider perspectives are also really helpful. Right. So that, that, there's the, um, you know, that the whole sort of structure of participant observation, right? It's like that I have one sure. foot in, in whatever's going on, but there's a part of my brain that's kind of trying to see it as an outsider. And that somewhere in the middle is where, you know, analytically we get our fullest description, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different elements of that. If you're focused on meaning, it's a more internal sort of um, or emic perspective. If you're focused on other kinds of things that can look different depending on your question, right? Um, but I think that there's, so there's that tension and I think there's that, that sense of importance of, of validating people's experience of participating, you know, in some way there's lots that we could criticize about how obviously it's not affecting everybody the same way. Um, uh, a lot of people have a lot more, also of all sorts of different kinds of resources. Um, but I think even getting a clue in, I think particularly about the uncertainty piece, you know, it's like if I could leverage, Mm -hmm. People, because even if people are not ill, and even if people's families are well resourced and protected or whatever, there's there's pieces about that uncertainty experience that are really fundamental. That I think if people could pay attention to them and sort of ask themselves, right, what this means and what it's like for other people, <laughs> um, mm-hmm, then that would be mm-hmm. that's potentially mm-hmm. productive, not only for researchers, but you know, in fact, for for people living through. And, and maybe empathetically moving through this experience together, right? And creating some kind of collectivity or a sense of collectivity or a sense of caring about, you know, what other people's experiences are. Um, maybe I'm too optimistic to think that that can happen, but um, 
one, you know, if it's going to happen, that might be one way it could happen, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think there's that the other piece that I would say about are we all disaster social scientists now that I think is a little tricky is that um, we want to validate everybody's own experiences. They bring their own lenses as researchers. They bring their own backgrounds, you know, just in my field alone. It's like you have political anthropology, you have you know, medical anthropology, you have a million different kinds of anthropology, and each of those subfields has their own, and we have certain shared theories and analytics, but we also have our own, you know, that have developed. But there's a way in which, for me, as someone whose work sits at the nexus of, of a lot of those collectively, and has struggled to kind of be like, well, which, which is the space I really fit in, there's a part of me that feels like, oh, now is the time for people like me, because we actually need these perspectives from all these different um, mm -hmm. theoretical angles, types of data, you know, whatever all those pieces are. And I think that's really important, a really important conversation, and I welcome it. But also as someone who relatively recently has come into the field of disaster studies, um, I would say that there's also a lot that has already been learned, right? And so for folks coming into looking at this kind of through a disaster lens or being interested in it through a disaster lens, that it's really important to also which is also why getting back to the sort of question about like the understanding Katrina series and why I also keep trying to promote that as well as some of these other things. This is a quick way for people to get exposed to, as Kathleen Tierney wrote, you know, in the piece in our series, it's like 70 years of disaster research, you know, it's a really long right. and deep history that is, it's been dominated by certain disciplines, but there's a lot of breadth in it as well. And so that there's some of those kinds of things that I think also we want to make sure we're not kind of reinventing the wheel on things that are, are, you know, are pretty established understandings, you know, about certain kinds of um, things about how certain kinds of, you know, emergency management structures are or whatever, you know, I think that you come into it and, and right. it's new to you. And then you're like, oh, command and control, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, people have been talking absolutely. about that for a long time, you know, um, just to use my own, you know, example of myself. So I think that, that, we can all be our own kinds of disaster social scientists and there's a real benefit and positivity to that. But also it's like, let's do our own due diligence of sort of really kind of looking at what, what other literatures already exist, where are the parallels to other kind of work that's already been done. Cause I think there's an element of comparativeness that's really important yeah. to this as well. So I just want to remind people, you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Alexa Dietrich about social sciences and disaster research. And I'm taking this opportunity since you made that turn to talk about um, the opportunities of this moment um, to rediscover and be okay with the fact that we don't haven't all read all of everything. And, <laughs> and so we can help each other to realize where there are deep pockets of research like disaster sociology. Um, and it's a good moment to also say, though, that there are new methods at hand and there are new configurations at hand. And the SSRC is actually helping us do this. Um, yeah. Alexa and I are co-curating. I've got the link up here, but you can go to the SSRC.org website. And first of all, you'll be amazed at the amount of COVID work that's been produced in these last few months. And it's, to me, astounding and a real um, testament to the commitment of SSRC in this moment to help seed this work. And um, we've got our own 
collaboration on there and disaster studies, and people can see that their essays coming out, um, and we're bringing them along one a week or so. And Alexa, you and I wrote one early on to try to frame out some of these questions. I think we were in the unique position where we could have questions and not answers, which I was really glad <laughs> about when we did that. Um, but I want, I would like people to check them out because I think it gets to your, and I want to follow up with your point that, um, and I think this is a difference from how things were even 20 years ago. I don't think it's really considered, I was going to say acceptable, but I'll, let me say useful. I don't think it's really considered very useful anymore to rely on national stories. I, I think local case studies and empirical work always have value, but I don't think the nation as a container anymore really cuts it. And, and so this sort of transnational aspect is, is clear mm-hmm. uh, as in disaster studies. And, and I think the other, the other piece of this is that um, that's important is that uh, finding new voices and being aware of the way that the academy itself has perpetuated structures of disadvantage and racism, yep. which forces us to grapple with the fact that the inheritance of disaster research is profound, but in itself, it might perpetuate certain blind spots that now we're, we're learning we can't continue Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't say blind spots, spots, spots that are, are, are more difficult to track. Um, that's why I was so thrilled to have Kathleen Tierney in our series, because she wrote in the Understanding Katrina series, too. And she was saying mm-hmm. those things then in 2005. But as usual with Kathleen, she was way ahead of her time. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that I think that the question about there's all sorts of ways in which I think. Um, obviously, some sectors of academia have been aware of aware of these things for a long time or not just aware, but, but living with and dealing with these things for a long time, I think at a, on a broader scale, academia um, is at least in some sectors, right. Trying to be more self-reflexive of understanding about how certain kinds of structures um, create inequality, create disadvantage um, across uh, racial lines, across gender lines uh, and I think that the, the sense of we actually, as some colleagues of mine in anthropology, just uh, wrote a piece um, for practicing anthropology that that talks a little bit about that as well. The sort of sense of um, what it also what it means to do research, you know, um, who's your research for, right? Who's who's it advantaging or disadvantaging as you do your research? Right. Um, that includes right. things like how does the IRB process protect institutions and not always actually human subjects. Uh, you know, right. what, is, what would it mean to kind of engage in a different kind of ethical uh, conversation with, you know, you, in the case of anthropology, you know, your community of study or the communities that you're, you know, that you collaborate with. Um, and what does it mean to sort of say, to ask the question to sort of say, is it really okay if I do research here and to have the response be no, <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and, right. and I think that, you know, so I think that those kinds of questions, I think also researchers in a disaster, in any disaster context would really do well. I mean, and I put myself in that category as well, right? Like we all need to do that all the time. I don't think any of us have a particularly higher moral ground to stand on, except that we're just trying to ask the question to ourselves and, and think that other folks should ask it as well, right? That And, you know, and in fact, um, I think increasingly also funding agencies, and I say this as SSRC is, is sort of elaborating these kinds of questions within our own 
research applications also is like, well, what are what are the real ethical considerations of your research? And and to say I'm getting it go mm. through an IRB is not a sufficient answer, you know. Um, and I think right. so. I think that there's there's a way in which institutions like the SSRC can help play a role with that um, by requiring that, you know. And not, there's been a lot of outsourcing, I think, of ethical questions. Um, again, that sort of question of right, pass it, you sort of blame shifting a little bit. Um, you see it a lot with social data research, right? That this sort of some IRBs have just been like, oh, well, it's proprietary data, so it's like not under our, um, not mm-hmm. under our supervision or whatever. And it's like, well, then whose supervision is it under? Uh, so you know, there've been and there's been a couple of those kinds of incidents, and people have called attention to them, and and they've been discussed. But I think that there's a way in which um, that that also that question for disaster researchers or for anyone who's keen to research a lot of questions that that have come up in social science a lot questions about vulnerability questions about um about um inequality i mean you know that there are ways in which uh outside researchers have um have not necessarily paid attention to really what the needs of those communities are they're, they're like really keen to document them but what then happens after that you know and i think that this is right. also a moment to sort of call attention to that um and to think about, well, what do we mean when we talk about collaborative research? And when are, you know, what are circumstances where, if you think about collaborative research as a methodology, right, that there are different kinds of research questions that will lend themselves to certain kinds of methodologies, and that's fine. But I think, you know, in these kinds of um, emergency, catastrophic, disaster, whatever you want to call them, very, you know, life or death mm-hmm. kinds of circumstances, there are obligations there um, that I think Right. Disaster studies and anyone coming into this kind of field maybe need to really just um, need to think about and we need to talk about, you know, it's like I, I'm not sitting here saying like, I have all the answers it. to this, Absolutely. but but we need to be really upfront yeah. in kind of like how, what are our standards as a field, so to speak, about how we think about these things. And there have been some new and interesting pieces that have come out, people really writing and thinking about this. So I think the conversation is on its way, but I think um, this global global so circumstance really kind of calls calls it into question. No, I, I, there's so many additional complications. I mean, even just at a logistical level about, you know, Zoom interviews and about um, some of the things we were talking about previously, about the uncertainty of who, I guess it's always uncertain, you know, to a certain extent, you know, who's the victim and who's not the victim in a disaster. Um, but in, in this one, it, it's, it's un. I mean, if a person has died, okay, maybe it's more clear. Um, but, you know, there's a recent study out from a Penn State group talking about the sort of COVID, you know, m- misery multiplier, the number of people who are impacted in different communities when one person dies. Mm-hmm. Even to begin to think in that way um, is important, but also raises a whole host of sort of ethical considerations about naming victims and not naming other people and to get right. sort of constantly dividing the world up into the studier and the studied right. it, the name as, as you said yeah and i don't i think we've often been hesitant to wade into these things in part because who was in the room to ask the question and who wasn't but also we sometimes we don't want to talk about these these issues max Lieberman and jen henderson a couple of scholars i have great respect for have been writing about Yep. You know, mutual aid, like how researchers should actually take upon themselves certain responsibilities and be clear about what they can and can't do when they right. come into a community and start asking questions. Yep. Robert Soden is writing a lot about mutual aid right now. We published a, 
SSRC published an essay by Robert in this series. Um, so that work is, that work is out there for sure. Um, but let me ask you, let me, one, the question I had in that is, um, to your point about, you know, maybe you reach a point where you say, well, I can't, I can't ask that question or I can't do that study. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a kind of a new moment. That's a kind of a new revelation, I think, to a certain yeah. extent in the social sciences. What, what are the broader implications of that, of that? Do you think? I've been thinking yeah. about this a lot too, but I mean, not in the sense that I have an answer, but just that it's been on my mind. And I think, um, because there's all sorts of reasons that like on the one hand we can contrast, there's a huge amount of work being done now. There's also a huge amount of work not being done for a variety of reasons. Um, but they, 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 um, they can, they potentially articulate with one another. Right. So that, um, what, what are the circumstances you have an, you know, an academic or researcher, a professional researcher who identifies a really important set of questions, problems, you know, is contingent with their existing work. Um, and they reach a point either because they've had conversations with, you know, there's folks in their study population or their community who, you know, depending on which social science we're talking about, um, where basically the answer, whether it's their personal answer or an answer from someone else is, um, you can't do this project. That, of course, has happened in the history of social sciences for all sorts of reasons, and people just switch to other projects. But I think that um, there's a way in which there, that might happen more. It might be more pervasive, um, or it should be more pervasive. And so then what happens to people who sort of take ethics seriously and don't do research? Then there are going to be people who are not asking themselves those questions, are not being held to a higher standard. Right you know, or they're being held to whatever the standard is that they're held to, and that's sufficient to go in and collect data and run an analysis or do whatever. Um, so I think that there are, this circumstance is opening up a lot of pockets in professional research, whether we call it academia or whatever else. I'm just, I'm just putting think, up a comment. That's, yeah, no, that's I just, a, no, no, yeah. I think that's, I think that's true, but I'm talking, I mean, th- her, this comment, this person's yeah. comment is absolutely accurate. I mean, it's not new, except that there in the broader social sciences, it's really, I mean, it's newer <laughs> and I'm not saying that's right. right. And I'm not saying, I mean, right. Like this is yeah. these, these, these no, lenses, I, I mean, these lenses are, they're not mainstream. Right. I mean that, you know, they should be, yes, but they're, um, so I think that, that there's, um, there's a lot of work that continues to be done where people look at it and say, wow, I'm not, you know, that's, how do they get that access or how do they do, you know, whatever. And, and sometimes the answers are maybe some ethically questionable choices. Um, and I think that there's, yeah. there's a reckoning to be had there, but at the same time, you know, it is the system as itself right now produces or, uh, rewards output. Right. So I, I don't know. I mean, like I said, this person's, this person's comment is absolutely correct, but I don't think that means that the system does not still in fact reward not doing this. Yeah. Now I want to thank Jamie for bringing this point in. And I think it, again, it underlines um, just a little follow up there again from, thank you so much for that, Jamie. I, I, because I think it again, underlines the conversations that so many people are having in, in disaster research broadly. And, you know, the, the hazards meeting, um, the hazards meeting that just finished uh, last week in, in Boulder 
Um, you know, that was, of course, one of the questions that was coming up there. And I think it's one of the things that I know Laurie Peak is, is really invested in, in too, is that um, you don't want to diminish. Maybe some of this is kind of normal. Uh, it just feels because we're living through the disaster. It feels so acute mm-hmm. that we don't want to diminish the findings of previous generations of scholars. But at the same time, sure. um, these critical like, um, you know, critical race theory or, or, you know, things that Jamie has mentioned, they're not brand new. They just haven't been applied in disaster research in a thoroughgoing way. I mean, I I had this conversation about emergency management research. The history of emergency management is an old field, but it's, you know, those lenses have not been brought to it on a consistent basis. And that means some hard questions about the way emergency management is constituted in the United States have not been consistently asked. And I don't think the field can move forward unless we ask the question about structural racism and emergency management. I just don't see how we go forward if we don't ask that question. Um, I want to, there's a couple other questions in, and I want to just get to Mm -hmm. those so we don't leave people uh, getting great questions here. People tuning in. This is from uh, Jorge Benavides. Thank you, Jorge, for this. Um, Coming back again to the temporality issue, could we use Mm -hmm. the length of recovery for communities as an analytic, um, as we study and compare different kinds of disasters across different disciplines. I, I'd like to know what you. Yeah, think about I mean, I this. think, I think, I think it would be a really interesting question to ask. I think it it itself begs the question of how do we how do we decide when the recovery is over, <laughs> you know, or when it's been effective. I mean, I'm sure that there, there you know, that is um, even though I'm sure there are particular kinds of analytic political economic and other kinds of analytic points, data points that would, that can give an answer to that. I'm not sure we would all agree on that answer. Um, and so I think that, I think, yes, it would be a super interesting question, but then I think there would be a precursor conversation about, and whose standard of the measurement of recovery are we going to use in order to, to ask that? Or, and it's an interesting question is also, you know, like even within different disciplines, do they have different ways that they talk about the sort of, the success or not of a recovery and how do they compare and what kinds of data are they using to, to think about that? Yeah. I like this question too, because there, there are these terms of art where the practitioner community and the research community do converge on them. Mm-hmm. Resilience is the one I pick on the most, or it picks on me. I'm not sure, but um, resilience, vulnerability, mitigation, response, recovery, they seem like very innocuous words and they look Mm -hmm. fine on a flow chart. Um, But I see really exciting convergences of practitioners and and researchers at those points right now. Just exactly as you said, like, Mm -hmm. well, it's not going to be clear from an emergency management perspective how long the recovery of the pandemic lasts. And, and if that doesn't square with the way they've thought about the timeliness of recovery, they're going to have to, I mean, they're sensitive to that. They want to get the amount of funding that's necessary for them to carry out their work. They're professionals. Um, right. So I think that there's possibility, and I'm always, um, and I draw from Kim Fortune on this, I'm always looking for those places where practitioners and social scientists actually get deeply invested in a question together. Because mm-hmm. I do think it will make for a better study. It'll make for more reflexivity and, of course, selfishly, probably better empirical data, too, <laughs> more rich empirical data, too. Yeah. Um, 
I want to come to another one here from Jim. Um, could COVID be characterized as one of the first universal disasters? Unlike most previous pandemics, COVID appears to have reached all corners of the globe. Again, that sort of boundary issue here, the transnational one. I know you've been thinking a lot about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's certainly an argument to be made for that, partly because it kind of it also, again, you know, raises the questions about about how do we quantify and qualify impact, right? So um, it's reached all corners of the globe. What does that mean? And then I think there's also really interesting questions about interrelatedness and also lag time. You know, so I was just thinking about this when we when you were saying what you're talking about before, Scott. If you think about somewhere like New Zealand, which appears to have controlled and cut off COVID in their incredibly bounded country, right? But that doesn't mean that they're, you know, but, but that they might be able to maintain that, but it's going to have costs to them in terms of their level of interconnectedness with the rest of the world. Um, perhaps not in terms of goods, goods, but services, presumably tourism, other kinds of things. So that even as we see, see recovery happening and, and um, mm. you know, overcoming, I guess, and there's recovery about like overcoming and stabilization, uh, but but the question of connectedness is going to be, I think, a very long term kind of set of questions. And what's the, what are the reverberations of, for example, the U.S.'s failure to address, you know, um, right. so that there may be other places that have really much more successfully addressed it, be able to lock it down, be able to do whatever, be able to kind of move into a recovery stage. But if we haven't done that, our relative impact in the global economy, for example, could reverberate, you know, to other places and, and make things make things different anyway. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, if the U.S. doesn't, you know, it's like everybody else is going to just, um, they'll figure out ways to do things without us, I suspect. But but there will be change, you know, really fundamental change that will flow from this. Mm -hmm. um, and in ways that we have no way of predicting right now, I think is fair to say. That's, it, to me, raises a really interesting research question. If you're if you're not, if you, if you want to move past the sort of national stories of COVID-19 um, and you recognize that the, there's sort of like all of the global trends are felt locally. So we could do a lot of local, I mean, COVID has affected every community, certainly. Um, that's all valuable, but it's really challenging methodologically to look for um, comparative instruments Mm -hmm. that that take you across national borders uh and w one of them is probably the one you and i know pretty well which is the academic sector itself you know that um how is covid 19 because higher education is a global enterprise scholars themselves moving globally but more and more students moving globally within asia from asia to north america from you know around europe um, that's been one that I'm seeing this play out literally day by day as the number of cases go up in Pennsylvania, the possibility that international students are going to be coming for a fall semester at Penn or at Drexel or Temple is decreasing. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's one space where you find that it's, it's sort of an American story, but it has this global reverberation, but in this right. particular sector. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there, and I think there, are, you know, there are ways in which, um, 
this is one of those places where I think the multidisciplinary perspective is really important conversation because as an anthropologist, I'm not thinking about the same things along those lines that an economist would think about um, or a political scientist or a sociologist or a geographer, you know? And so I think that, that as those, as those kinds of questions, you know, are going to, um, are going to implicate different sectors, different types of, uh, resources, you know, all the other things that, that travel these days. Right. Um, that I think it's, it's, that would, that's, that's one place where I think the interdisciplinary perspectives is really could provoke a lot of really important, important thinking. So we're almost up on, on time. I, there, I want to just, there's a sentence from our um, essay, which I want to challenge you with. <laughs> um, it's always good to have your own writing. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, I'll challenge myself, but I'm gonna challenge you. Um, and it's cause I think it's one of the most hopeful aspects uh, in a, in a time where we do need that also from research. I mean, Social science yes. research is supposed to also offer pathways of understanding that should hatch, hit onto policy processes, or at least that's the premise we've run with for an awfully long time. It may not be linear, but they should be connected. You say, we say, um, new research methods challenge us to see work on COVID-19 not as a linear path to a finished product, but as a way to deepen empirical knowledge and form theory, while also repairing broken infrastructures and perhaps even providing reparations for longstanding injustices. Can you say a little bit more about your hope for that? I mean, again, sort of to draw some of this all together in the same frame, the work that you've done with public health, your medical anthropology work. I don't think you would have done all of that work unless you did have a possibility that the work can lead to better outcomes for people in dire situations. This is a particularly oh, yeah. dire situation, especially for a lot of communities in America that are underserved historically. And, and yet you framed it. I think you wrote this. <laughs> I think you wrote this part of the essay. It sounds um, like me. <laughs> that, yeah, it's fantastic. And it, it, and when I read it again, I feel energized to do this SSRC work. Um, yeah. But how, how does the research open up a pathway to reparations? How, how can we well, offer I think repair? We need, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's an open question. It's not to me, like, I'm not sitting here saying I'm going to make a prescription for how this should work, because it's not me who should be dictating that, right? Part of it is that this opens up, I think the idea of opening up conversations with the most affected communities um, are, and I think that there is, and, and I would say this, and I should be really clear, I'm not saying this in any way as a representative of the SSRC right now. This is my, um, this is something that I've been thinking about. I'm not the only one who's thinking about it, but this is just kind of how I've been thinking about it. Um, and again, as I said, in conjunction with um, Beth Marino and um, some other folks, a piece that we, that we worked on recently was um, asking right, that I think researchers should ask, is there a justice case for your research? And I don't think every single research project has to have an answer of yes, right? There's other kinds of research to be done in the world that is valuable. 
empirically. Um, but I think that if you're working in this, you know, kind of um, set of topics, uh, that that's a fair question, right? Is there a justice case to be made for the research that you're proposing to do? Um, that can look like lots of different things. And, and the ultimate answer to that is, well, the folks that you're working with, you know, or the sort of folks who are either subject to or collaborative in your research about their life experiences uh, should help dictate what that means, right? Um, and that's something that I, you know, when I went and did my initial research in, in Puerto Rico, I worked very closely with a community-based uh, grassroots advocacy group. And one of the things that I asked them was, what do you want from me? <laughs> you know, what sort of what can I, they had lawyers, right? I was not a lawyer and they didn't need me to be a lawyer for them. They had them. Um, but there were things they asked of me periodically, just asked of me, what are the things that I can do to be supportive of them? What were the things? So there were some cases where I went with them to, to um, court hearings and I took notes for them because that wasn't something that they had a great facility to do um, in that context, you know, so there were just, and some of it might be simple. Some of it might be, you know, could be much more substantial. I think it probably depends on size of the research team, the level of engagement, the kind of funding you have, like there's all sorts of, you know, variables to that. But to me, it's sort of a question of the people who can answer that question are not you, the researcher. Um, but it's a question you, the researcher have to ask, I guess. Right. Or well, I think should be asked. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, and I think that's, that's probably a good place for us to leave it for this for this conversation, um, I've kept you over That's our good. time, but the conversation <laughs> okay. flowed very easily as it always does with you. And I want to, again, just give a quick plug for if people want to know more about this work, they can go to ssrc.org and they can find the many, many different projects underway there under the COVID-19, um, in the COVID-19 space. And they can, um, if you want to, and you should, I hope, go into the disaster studies part of that and you'll find their essays that Alexa and I are co-curating, um, which we hope will live up to the impossibly high bar set by the Understanding Katrina series. And, and just to underline that, um, those essays were important in their moment, but there's still monographs that are coming out connected to that work. And I think for a lot of younger disaster researchers right now, this will be the defining disaster of their career. I mean, I think there are probably people who are coming up in disaster research right now that will work on COVID-19 for their whole career. I'm sure of that. Mm -hmm. um, so this will have many different temporal, temporal dimensions. Um, I think that um, I just want to also give a quick plug since you're here, Alexa. Tomorrow, our guests are, my guests are uh, Manuel Taroni and Sarah Kelly who published an essay um, titled Care and Sovereignty, Territorial Control and the Colon Decolonization of Disaster Risk Reduction. So they're writing from a Chilean perspective. Um, mm -hmm. So please join us for that conversation tomorrow. You've been listening to COVID Calls. You can catch COVID Calls Monday through Friday, 5 o'clock Eastern time. Alexa, thanks a million for your time today. Yeah, it was a great pleasure, Scott. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.